pick those up. Well, good morning. I don't want to pick on you, Annie, but we're so thankful that you're back with us today. Did you see her there? She's got her place back. So let's just welcome her back to us. We've been praying for you, and we've missed you. It's a big hole right there. Yeah, and Greg, thanks for taking such good care of her, and it's a very encouraging for me to see personally. So we're super glad that you're here, and we love you, and we just want you to, to know that. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, let's see. Two quick things. Kids, unless you want to be really bored. I'm kidding. It's going to be totally exciting. You staying with us? Yes. Men's Bible study. We had 17 guys or like 15 guys this last week. Uh, There are still a couple of places left in our eight to nine slot. So if you didn't hear about it last week, uh, it filled up immediately. So if you have time to be here between 8 and 9, it's just the next four Fridays, basically. Please uh, let me know. Uh, we'll get you, or Jake, wherever he went. Uh, you can get connected to him uh, or myself, and we'll plug you in there. And is women's Bible study back on starting this Thursday? Any ladies know for sure? Nobody knows. Where's Abby? Abby's out of town. Is it another week before we go again? Okay, check the Facebook page. <laughs> okay. One more week. Okay. So we're off this week for ladies. For the last couple of months, I've been going over to Paradise Place, where the little kids are, right up the street, across from UCC. And I read on Thursday mornings. And uh, it's a little bit of a new experience for me. I love kids and everything. But to, you know, crawl down onto the floor and read these books with these kids has been really fun. And I've, so I've been twice, I guess. The first time I went... Uh, I went to the, the littlest kids first, and I think they're like one and a half or two. Yeah. Uh, they don't really understand. Just, just this just in, okay? So, you know, I, I would read, and I, my main goal became to keep them entertained for a few minutes so the teacher could take a break and do whatever she needed to do. And, and that worked out pretty well. And I went to the next grade up around the corner and read to them, and, and that went pretty well. And I went upstairs to the lion's and read to those kids, and that went pretty well. They stayed engaged consecutively longer. Well, uh, then I, I left, and a, about a week later, I heard from a friend that somehow, actually, there is another grade in the basement. I had just left and, and didn't go read to them, so um, it was a little bit embarrassing, but I overcame that the last time I went, and I made it around to the basement, uh, but it was the... the uh, the second group, when I sat down, there's like five of them, and I'm squatted down in there with them. And it's pretty hard for me to get on their level, as you can imagine. So I'm, I'm way down in there, and this little girl gets sat down next to me, and I'm telling you, she needed a diaper change. And I was mentally telling myself, you can do this. I, was, I had to self-talk. I made it. It was amazing. And I got to the other, the thing about this uh, reading to them is it's interesting that some of the, I brought three or four books that my children had 
grown up with, and some of them really engaged them. They really paid attention. And for a long time, I was, this is, but it would, the other book I would read, and they weren't as connected to it. And I don't know what the reasoning is for that. But when I was, uh, this one particular book, I, I noticed that, and, and the kids stayed with me for almost 30 minutes downstairs, and I was like, well, something is, you know, something about this story is riveting to them. And as I've been looking back now at the things we've seen in, in the book of Acts that Luke is sharing with us, it's like this series of intense vignettes. And if you've been here, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's, it started with the, the resurrection, then we have the ascension, we have the Holy Spirit coming, and then we have these amazing speeches and all these people coming to Christ, right? So all of these just dramatic things are happening, and Luke is kind of keeping the story going, right? He's keeping those, the people of that day interested and hopefully ourselves as well. So last week we saw this, another vignette where the, uh, this Jewish, Greek Jewish man reaches out uh, with the gospel to an Ethiopian, an aristocratic Ethiopian. And God has this, pur- this purpose in, in making that story be a part of his word. And Luke is delivering that to us. And this week, another one. And it just keeps on going. And as uh, Chris mentioned, we're in Luke 9. So if you want to get over there, if you're using your own Bible, Luke 9, this is the story of Saul and his conversion. And I'm going to, again, apologize in advance because, you know, Saul becomes renamed Paul. And all throughout this manuscript when I wrote it, it was constantly Paul, Paul, Saul. I just, you know, so I wrote Saul really big on the top of my notes. So if I say Paul, just uh, ignore that. The, the main thing that, that we want to see in this passage is, is just simply a dramatic conversion, a transformation of someone. And you'll see in the passage as we read it, in, in what you know about Saul already, Saul is, as Chris said, a bad guy. He is intent on destroying Christianity. That is his purpose, and he is... Uh, engaged in a lot of different ways, persecuting them. And the tension in the story is, this tr- is, is it possible for this person to transform like this? And he does. And the transformation that happens in him is such that he goes out for Christ with the same vigor and determination that he was persecuting Christ with before he was transformed, before he came to, to know Jesus personally. And in the story, you'll see he's on a journey, a physical journey. He's on his way to Damascus. But he's also on a spiritual journey. And I think in that spiritual journey, all of us, in some place or another, can connect with him. And there are three parts of it that I want to point out to you, three stages, if you will, in this journey. Well, the first one is animosity. Animosity. The second part is, I'm going to have to look at my notes to see. (laughs) There it is. Awakening, animosity, and awakening. And the third one is acceptance. Animosity, awakening, and acceptance. And I think that as we look at how he moved through that, each of us can find a place to engage there. And, And this is what I want to encourage you with guess what I I want to ask you to be thinking about as we walk through the passage? If you're a believer, if you've come to know Christ as your Savior, 
then I want to ask that you just sit back and listen to the story and listen to these different stages that he went through. And personally, with God, as you sit here, I want to ask you just to celebrate your testimony, your story, your conversion. Think back to these stages in your life. Some of you have a dramatic testimony, a dramatic story. God did amazing things to bring you to know Jesus Christ. And that is incredible if you did. And some of you don't even remember when you came to Christ. It just happened over a period of time. Either way, however dramatic your story is on the surface, the same weight of sin and animosity was lifted off of your shoulders when you came to Christ. So it doesn't matter how glamorous the story is. Celebrate that story. And if you haven't come to Christ, if you're still exploring that, and and I don't think you'd be here if you weren't, if you're thinking about who Christ is, and I want to ask you just to engage and, and try to put yourself in one of these stages. Are you in a stage of animosity, of distance from Christ? Or in an awakening place? Or in an acceptance place? So where do you fit in in that? So let's look at the passage. We're going to read 9, chapter 9, 1 through 11, and then we're going to skip up to 17 through 21. So bear with me while I read this and just listen to it as it unfolds. I think we'll have it up on the wall too. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way, and as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Now go down to 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened, and for some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Now, the first part of the journey that Paul is on, I'm calling animosity. Saul was an angry and antagonistic man. Listen to how he describes himself. The story, this story is repeated a couple of times in Acts, and then again, Paul discusses his, um, 
conversion in other parts of the New Testament. In Acts 26, verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He was pretty passionate about this. He was really an angry guy. And he was was zealous for the righteousness of God, but he was missing it. And Ananias, and we didn't read this part, but Ananias and the other disciples in that town in Damascus were afraid. Can you imagine if you heard that Paul was coming? And there's another place in the scripture that said Ananias was a well-respected Jew, a Jew who had come to know Jesus. He's a follower of Christ now. So who in particular is Paul looking for? Jews who came to Christ. Ananias should be worried. And it says later, if you keep reading in Acts, it says, you know, all of the, peop- the followers of Christ in Damascus were uh, scared. They were like, this, this can't be happening. This, can't, this transformation can't be real. But it is. Uh, now, before we get to being too angry and, and misunderstanding Saul too much, we need to realize that we are like him, and we, we were like him. Romans 5.10 says this, For if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Romans 5 is amazing when you set it next to the story of Paul's conversion. And he says, just like himself, all people were enemies. So it's not just that we have sin, but we're, we're actually enemies of God. And in that, we are like Paul. I mean, excuse me, Saul, who became Paul? Is anybody back there marking down the Pauls? That I'm, okay, you detail people out there. We may not have been persecutors, but we're all in the same category with him. And you know, that, that may sound somewhat unfair, but, but this is the thing, y'all. Uh, sin is serious. And it's a huge black hole in my theology and the way I think on a daily basis in the church, for believers in general, and for us, certainly for the world. We have not only the sin of Adam that we inherited, which Romans 5 talks about, when Adam sinned, we all then receive that in our DNA, if you will. But now, we also have our own sin to add to that. Sin is so serious that even the most uh, mundane conversion to Christ is radically dynamic. Are you hearing what I'm saying there? We, we, may, we put sin in a box and we say it's that thing that we deal with sometimes. No, sin is huge. Sin is pervasive. And when we, when, when we diminish our mundane testimony or elevate our incredible testimony, when we diminish the magnitude of sin, then what we do is we 
diminish the offering that Christ was to God. So whenever we don't, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but value sin, we diminish Christ. So when we value sin, when we realize its significance, its magnitude, we actually extol Christ because we realize even more what it is that he did when he took our place. You remember, uh, I'm sure, the movie, The Passion of Christ? I remember reading about it when it was coming out and, you know, how we, you know, so many people were excited about it and it's a great thing. But the whole focus of that movie was the passion, the walk of Christ to the cross, right? Lots of people have done that. I'm not trying to belittle that. It was what happened after he died that was the suffering. All of that stuff that the movie's about that looks horrible is nothing compared to what he took because of sin. So we want to be careful to recognize the great sacrifice of the the earthly thing that he did. But when we recognize the magnitude of sin, then we realize that what he did on the cross for us, between that transaction between him and God on our behalf, for all sin, past, present, and future, Think of the suffering of sin that you can think that you can imagine right now. And he took all of that. That's that's even greater than what we saw in the movie. So what I'm saying is we are all enemies of God because of sin until we come into a relationship with him, made possible by Jesus. Okay, there's another part of the journey it's called, that I'm calling awakening. And this is in 9, verses 3 through 9. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rising into the city, you'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood Speechless hearing, the voice which seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were opened, and he saw nothing. And they led him by the hand to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And I think this is unusual timing that God has chosen to interact with, with Saul. You think about it for a sec. He's at the height of his power, right? Everything's going great. He's got the papers from the high priest. He's on his way to Damascus, going to do his thing. I think if I was Jesus... I would have waited till a low point, right? I mean, that's when change happens a lot, when people hit rock bottom. Saul is not at rock bottom. But Jesus personally goes after him. And this is a a thing that we see time and time again in the book of Acts, especially that God goes specifically after individuals. And I think as you're reflecting on your journey, Think about the ways in which he came after you personally. Just meditate on that for a little bit. You see, Saul was on a longer journey than he realized. We, we tend to put Saul's conversion into this box of these verses in Acts 9. But Saul's conversion was a much broader thing. In Acts 26, he repeats the story. And he adds one little tidbit that came from Jesus at this moment that's not recorded in the first telling of the story. Acts 26, 14. 
we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, so a little more detail there, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Kind of sounds a little bit disjointed right there. So what does he mean? A goad is just a word for a pointed stick that a shepherd or a farmer would use to cause his animals to go in the direction he wanted them to go in. A pointed, so it means he would stick them in the side or wherever and, and force them to go the direction he wanted them to go. So you can imagine when you stick an animal, he kicks sometimes, or she kicks sometimes, right? So when, when Jesus says it's hard for you to kick against the goads, still, what does he mean? Okay, we know what a goad is now. What he means is that he has been in process with Saul. This, ha- this isn't all happening in this flash moment, but that Saul's been in a process coming up to this time. I'll be thinking about your own story. I wonder if Stephen, the martyr, was one of those goads. This prick, this loving prick, because the goad was in order to get the animals to do the thing that they needed to do, right? To show them the right direction, but sometimes painful. So, we didn't look at the story of Stephen uh, from up here, but Stephen is martyred. He's, he's put to death by people throwing rocks at him. That's a hard way to go. And it says that, see that whole process, essentially he doesn't flinch, but he's giving glory to God. You can, you can just imagine what it's like to get pummeled by rocks until you die. And Saul is there and he's holding the cloaks. I guess these other guys have stripped down to their under armor. I'm not sure what they had back then. But he's watching this take place. And he's seeing, he's just heard this amazing speech about who Jesus is from, from Stephen. And I'm just wondering if at high cost, Jesus had placed Stephen there to move Paul, the amazing apostle, the amazing evangelist, the amazing storyteller, into a relationship with him. You know, how do you, how do you fit into that story? Uh, another thing about Saul was that he had a deep history in the word. He knew a lot about the scripture. He was one of the uh, ruling Pharisee guys. He's like on top of his game. So he knew the word. And I wonder if he's in this process in the back of his mind thinking, you know what? I wonder if that stuff in Isaiah, that suffering servant stuff is about some, something I didn't expect, maybe about this Messiah. You know, his learning must be starting to inform him about the Messiah. And he's seeing these things about Jesus. It's part of the goad that, that has been put into his side. And then you saw, he, he goes into this period of three days of darkness. Why does God put him through three days of darkness, of, of blindness? He's at the crux of this decision-making point that's been coming for a long time. Jesus has, t- has come to him personally. All of these doubts and these thoughts about his history have come to point. And here he is in this moment of awakening, and it's in the darkness. I think he's thinking. Jesus says that to, when he talks to Ananias, he says that there's a man named 
Saul who's praying. All these things are going on for Saul. This is his moment of awakening. Maybe it tracks with what yours was like if you're a believer. Maybe you were gently or even painfully moved towards knowing Christ. Maybe there was a time of listening, of praying, of thinking before you came to know him. Do you remember those moments, perhaps? And if you don't know Jesus, and some of these things about him are coming into focus, I wonder, is he, is he moving you in that direction? Do you know what those goads are in your life? Could you point to them and see how he's working to bring you to that place where you can make the decision? Because he does leave the decision to you. All right, one, one more thing about this. This final part of the journey, we've had the animosity and a time of awakening and now this acceptance. And this is uh, from 9, verses t- starting verse 10. Now, those, now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am. And the Lord said, rise and go to Straight Street in the house of Judas and look for Tarsus, a man of Tarsus named Saul. And behold, he is praying. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. Did you notice that word that Ananias uses when he puts his hand on Saul? He says, Brother, Brother Saul. That tells me that Ananias really understood the gospel. Think about that for a second. Here's a guy who was scared to go, but he obeyed and he went. And when he put his hand on this guy and he said, brother, he recognizes that Christ's sacrifice covers all sin. And he was welcoming him into the community. Why else would he say brother? That was that heart that was Christ's heart that shows the transformation that had happened in Ananias. And he delivers that to Saul. So there is an acceptance here first by a part of the community towards this wicked person, right? That personally is is an example to me. And Jesus had said, remember Jesus said, hey, it's me, Jesus, Saul, you're persecuting me. In other words, there there is community between the believer and the Messiah. That when we are persecuted, he is persecuted. He is that close to us and he feels that. When we go through struggle, he goes through struggle. And that tells us about the Savior that we have. Well, Saul makes that decision to accept. He moves into that place of acceptance in in verse 18. It says, immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and he was baptized. His baptism, he, he clearly, he got up and said, time to get baptized. I know this is what I need to do right now. He had put his faith in Christ and he was moving to baptism and the next thing he's going to do is start preaching about Jesus. I remember personally when I came to Christ, I was like in sixth grade and I, I remember there was this moment of awakening for me. That doesn't always happen for everyone, but there was this moment where even though I'd been to confirmation in the church and all that, it, it didn't connect. It was still, I was still in a, point of animosity, but there was a time when I heard the gospel and it made sense and I was awakened to that and I had the freedom to make the choice. Do you remember that if you're a believer? Do you remember that time? 
So God's taken Saul on this amazing journey that really now is only just beginning. He brought him up to this pivotal moment and Saul made the decision to follow Christ. If your testimony, if you're a believer and your testimony is, like I said, uh, mundane, celebrate that. If you haven't gotten to the point where you have put your faith completely in Christ to take care of your relationship with God, place yourself in this continuum somewhere. And let me, let me close with this idea. The, the cool thing about how it works with Saul is you, you really can't be worse than Saul. It's, it's interesting that he's the guy here because he was persecuting Christ. Maybe you have been guilty of that. I don't know. But probably not at the, to the extent that, that Saul had. We can't be worse than him. On the other hand, we can't be better than him because we aren't Pharisees. We haven't spent our entire life studying the law and living for it so passionately that it's everything, everything to us. Every part of our life is built around that. So we can't be worse than him and we can't be better than him. The only thing that we can do is rely on Christ to to have done the work for us, to make us right before God. You can't achieve it. You can't be good enough. I quoted a verse earlier that was from Romans 3. It says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. What it does is this passage says, We've sinned and we fall short of the glory of God, but we're justified by His grace as a gift. And at the bottom of this passage in verse 25, it says, that gift is to be received by faith. Only Jesus has done all the things necessary to put us in a right relationship with God. We cannot do it. We're justified by his grace as a gift. And I want to ask you, if, if you know Christ, celebrate that transformation that he's done in you. And if you don't know Christ, put yourself in one of those, those three stages and be looking towards him and looking for that time when it will come for you to accept. So will you pray with me as we close? Father, I, I just uh, thank you for the story of Saul. God, we, are, uh, uh, we all see a place that we connect with that. God, we're challenged by the life of Ananias and his boldness and his uh, ability to obey you even in fear. God, we thank you for each of the stories that you are playing out in here, and I pray that if there are those in this room that don't know you yet, God, that they would sense you coming after them, directing you to a place where they can make a decision to follow you or not. God, guide them, lead them. And Lord, for those of us who know you, may we celebrate what you've done in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we all have a wonderful week. Grab some food on the way out. Yeah, I didn't mention that, but we're all...